How about now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> you gotta love technology, right guys? So let me go back to what I was saying to you. Okay, the last time that we were together, we chatted about compliance, right? And I shed a little bit of light on the fact that most of us have been doing compliance our entire lives. I shared with you my compliance event uh, of Thanksgiving and the turkey. And thank God we did have a contingency plan with Honey Baked Ham. Um, also shared with you that, you know, even as, as children, we follow a compliance plan. And as parents, we kind of become the compliance officers. So this is kind of a, 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 you know, a pattern, a role that we've been doing our whole lives. It's just that when we give it a title like compliance, rather than doing the right thing, that's when things kind of get maybe serious, right? So we think of compliance as being something major or maybe something that HR takes care of or administration takes care of. But in truth, we all do our part with compliance. So um, just a reminder to you, compliance isn't really an option, right? So since the Affordable Care Act, which was 2010, can you believe we've it's been that long since the Affordable Care Act came out? So in 2010, when the Affordable Care Act came out, it had a contingency in it that said, any organization that accepts any federal funds, meaning payments, either from Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, then that organization must have an active compliance program in place. Not a choice, right? If you accept federal funds. So it's kind of mandated by law that everyone have an active compliance program. So a couple of things that that does. Well, first of all, in the event of a federal payer audit, sometimes those come to our offices disguised as additional documentation requests. You know, I'm sure that you have seen that a time or two, right? Um, so without an effective compliance program, the maximum penalties and fines can be assessed to you if they find any adverse action. And did you know that you don't even have to have firsthand knowledge of a false claim or if of an adverse effect, you don't even have to have firsthand knowledge in order to be punished for it. It's called deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard of the truth. So it basically just means that we can't um, put our heads in the sand and say, well, I didn't know, right? So that excuse of I didn't know doesn't work because we have to have an active compliance plan. Now, remember last week or, or last time we were together, we talked about the seven elements that the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, puts out there for us to help guide us into an effective compliance program in our in our practices there. So they have advised us that the first thing that should happen is that we should implement policies and procedures, standards of conduct, right? What do we do? How do we do it? And what are the expectations? So, okay, we've got that. Next, you need to designate a compliance officer. So who's in charge? Whose responsibility is 
compliance or, or leading the compliance program, right? And sometimes it takes a village, right, guys? More than one compliance officer because maybe there are other committee members that play different roles in the practice and they see different things in the practice and they can bring that to the table, to that compliance table. Next is conducting effective training and education. So learning, right? That's teaching you what those rules are, what are those guidelines, what are we expected to do in our practice in order to stay compliant. Um, there should always be open lines of communication. So you should be able to reach out when you don't understand something or when you need additional resources. You should be able to reach out to maybe your supervisor, administration, but most definitely to that compliance officer or your compliance committee to kind of understand. So maybe if you saw something in education that you weren't 100% sure of, that you should feel comfortable being able to go to those resource folks in your office there. Um, enforcing standards and having well-published disciplinary guidance, right? So remember, with anything, there are benefits if we do it the right way, and there are consequences if we don't. And so having those in writing and everyone understanding what the expectation is, those standards, and of course, any disciplinary actions that might happen if we don't meet those standards or we don't follow those rules. Is there a re-education? Maybe there is a, a replace, maybe it's time to replace that person or move them around. So I think I shared with you guys before that we had a front office person who continuously was making mistakes in the office. And through monitoring, we saw that the denials were coming across more often for misrepresented ID numbers or patients' names being spelled incorrectly. And when we had a chat with that patient, with that front office person, and we started to do some education with them to show them the importance of having all that information go in the system correctly, we found out that that employee had dyslexia. So when we moved them to another position like referrals, then that, that employee was able to shine. We put somebody else in their place. Denials went down. So again, it's going in and assessing finding out what's going on, um, and then responding promptly to anything we see. So if we do see when we go to re-educate that our staff member is dyslexic, let's find another place where we can make them shine, where they can really do their jobs there. So uh, sometimes if someone doesn't get the message, you know, we keep telling them, we keep educating them, we keep monitoring them, and they keep making those same mistakes. Well, sometimes we need to put a corrective action in place in order to stop that hemorrhaging, right? Um, when we receive something that doesn't belong to us, we have to return it. So, and we have to figure out how that eventually happened and so that we don't have to go through all those steps again. Anyway, that's what we talked about last time. And, and you can see that if your seven elements are implemented in your practice and they're kept active, then that's an effective program and it, essentially, it's going to reduce the possibility of any type of fraud or abuse, whether knowledgeable or not knowledgeable, in your practice. So uh, a, a few other things that the OIG has been wonderful with us about is that they identified some of the risk areas or those potential risk areas 
that we should follow in compliance, especially from a billing and coding perspective, right? There's lots of other laws out there that pertain to healthcare and the business of medicine out there, but most of us, we're in that biller or coder ro roles there. And so let me share with you some of the things that have already been identified. So this means that the higher powers or those that be have already seen that these are areas that a lot of practices have risk in. Not saying that your practice does. Again, if you have an active compliance program in place where you're establishing expectations, monitoring those expectations, providing education, um, putting action plans in place, then you've probably already set goals to make sure that these risks aren't happening in your practice. So those are the, the areas that were identified were billing for items or services that were not provided. So that's of those instances that maybe you ordered a urinalysis for a patient, but they couldn't supply a sample, right? And we accidentally billed them for a urinalysis when one wasn't performed. So having a policy in place that addresses those types of situations and lays out the expectation. Submitting claims for equipment or medical supplies or services that are not reasonable and necessary. So an example of that is I could walk into my doctor's office tomorrow and say, look, Dr. Brandy, um, I need a test for the bubonic plague. And she's going to look at me and go, Christine, what are you talking about? Have you been traveling again? No, I haven't been traveling. Do you have friends that have been traveling? No, I don't have friends that have been traveling. Are you sick? Do you feel bad? Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, congestion, uh, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, chest pain. You having anything? No, 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 I feel great. But, you know, I was on Facebook the other day and I noticed that on Facebook, everybody's getting bubonic plague. So I want to be tested. Well, if I have no signs and symptoms, I have no history that would support the medical necessity for my insurer, my the payer to pay that bill, then it wouldn't be appropriate for my provider to submit a claim for that service. Does that make sense? It would kind of be better if I paid for my own bubonic plague, especially since there's no medical reason why my doctor would think that I would have bubonic plague right? Other than I want it done. So there are those instances there. Um, double billing. So most of us don't ever intend to do double billing, but think about those times when you accidentally submitted a batch of claims a second time and you got that denial for duplicate. The point with that is that someone or something or the time or the machine or the computer software was used to process those denials where that time could have been used processing legitimate claims and not a subsequent claim. So it does create a bit of waste on those federal payers when we submit those. So accidents happen, not saying that that's a problem, but we should have some sort of a policy in place to identify when a batch has already been submitted and a policy that says how to remove that batch from the queue or to check that that batch has been remo removed from the queue before we resubmit those claims, right? Easy peasy. Uh, another area is billing for non-covered services as if they were covered. So the way that we find that out is being familiar 
with the payer policies, with the LCDs and NCDs from CMS. We also should be aware of the patient's benefits, what the benefit coverage is for those patients before we identify something as non-covered. Um, and we should have a policy in place that just outlines those kinds of steps. How about knowingly misusing a provider's identification number, which could result in improper billing? So in my years of experience, I have heard a time or two that the, a practice will bring in a new doctor. And while that doctor is in the credentialing process, they will bill claims under another doctor's NPI number as if that doctor had provided the services. So that's a misrepresentation of the services. Now, I'm not talking about the incident two benefit or the split shared visit benefit. I'm simply talking about generally submitting claims under someone else's NPI number in order to get payment that they would have not received had they been submitted under the person who provided those services NPI number. So again, these are areas that have already been identified. These are not things that, that we occasionally encounter. Um, another area that we wanna look at is billing for unbundled services. So remember that each surgical procedure includes surgical global components, right? So a, a surgery procedure includes the evaluation of it. No doctor walks in a room with a scalpel and says, where can I cut you today, right? They evaluate you first, they see what's going on and they say, yeah, yeah, it would be great for us to do this type of procedure. They always include Novocaine, they numb it. We're not barbarians, guys. We don't go and start cutting on people or, or you know, suturing people that don't have any Novocaine, lidocaine, whatever those canes are to numb them. Um, Post-operative instructions are always included, right? So go home, don't get it wet or make sure you wash it or whatever that is. And then come back if you have any problems. Sometimes we have global periods where things are included, like additional office visits might be included during those global periods for those particular conditions. So having a little policy in place that identifies that, giving some education on where those rules are, easy peasy, following a compliance program. Next, I want to tell you about failure to properly use coding modifiers. Um, unfortunately, I've heard it too many times. We put that modifier on there to get paid. Hmm. I kind of get what you mean by that, but it could be taken in a different way. We want to make sure that all modifiers are always supported. So we have mechanisms to help us with that. We have our NCCI edits with those procedure to procedure edits. We have the medically um, uh, exclusive edits there that tell us how many times something can be reported with it. And then of course, looking at the definition of those modifiers and making sure that that scenario that we want to imply on the procedure is supported in documentation, right? Or have a process of querying the provider going and asking for additional information to support that modifier that we want to report. And lastly is upcoding, right? So I know we had a lot of changes uh, this year for our office E&M services and uh, want to make sure that everyone is understanding those new guidelines, that we're using those new guidelines to report our office visits. 
that when a patient is in the hospital, that the documentation supports those subsequent hospital visits and that we're not accidentally upcoding something that isn't supported in documentation. So we should have those in place. Now, um, I have talked about policy and procedures, and I promised you last time that I'm going to show you really how easy it is to develop a policy and procedure in your office. Now, I'm, I'm doing it very um, simply for you, right? I highly recommend that once these policies are developed, you run them by your supervisor who may have something to offer. Run them by the compliance officer and the compliance committee so they can take a look at your policy and make sure that there's nothing that could be added to it or maybe something that's not relevant to that policy, right? And that it gets approved by the compliance committee. The policy also has to be given to your staff and educated on that policy. They have to be told how to use this policy, when is it appropriate to use this policy, and to assure that they understand the procedures that are listed in that policy. So let's kind of take a look at that. I put together a really simple uh, sample policy for you guys. And let me see if I can get this up and running so that you can kind of see what I'm talking about here. Oops, let's see. Now I want that back up. And you got to love technology, right, guys? Let me share my screen with you. Okay, can everyone see my screen okay? Can I get a thumbs up in the chat? Anyone? Give me a good old thumbs up in the chat if you can see my screen. No, you can't see my screen, Kelly. That's awful. Let's see. Yes, now you can see my screen. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that. Thanks, Sylvia. I appreciate that. Okay, so I wanted to do a policy on the proper use of coding modifiers, right? That was one of those areas that the OIG has identified as, you know, potential risk area, right? We know this already. So today is December 16th. I want to write this policy. It's for my billing and coding department, right? So the next thing that I'm going to do is, oops, hold on. The next thing I'm going to do is, is write the purpose of the policy, right? So a modifier is defined by the CPT manual. It provides a meaning by which we can indicate a service or a procedure has been performed that, and it has been altered in some way, but it doesn't change the original definition of the procedure or the code that we're reporting. Staff should be familiar with the appropriate modifier usage. Guidelines can be found in CPT, in the Medicare carrier manuals, in the correct coding initiative, NCCI, the mutually exclusive edit files, MUEs. Modifiers are always to be used properly. So that's the purpose, that's the policy. That's what we really wanted to say that our practice is going to do. That's what we're doing. Next, we look at how we're gonna do that. So we should have something simple. When two or more CPT or HICS-PICS codes are reported at the same encounter, the coding and billing staff member will consult the encoder or the NCCI for procedure to procedure modifier guidance and the mutually exclusive edits. Wonderful. It tells you what you're supposed to do. Documentation will then be reviewed to assure that each modifier is supported. Only supported modifiers will be added to the claim. 
If the documentation does not support the modifier, the provider can be queried for additional information. Wow, there's our policy, right? It can start as something as simple as that. It is what we do and how we do it. What is the expectation and the standard that we've put in place? So policies don't have to be very long-winded. If you already have a compliance program in place, I guarantee that you've got a section in your compliance manual that talks about these separate areas there. So it talks about the purpose of using coding modifiers, right? Reach out to your compliance officer. See if you, you know, review that compliance manual and see what's already there. You may not have to reinvent the wheel if it's already included in your compliance manual. You just need to take that information, put it into a purpose and explain how that's going to happen. So uh, for those of you that kind of need a little bit further explanation of what I was talking about in this policy, maybe you also want to add a graphic slide. So this are the procedure to procedure edits. They come directly from CMS and they are supported by the AMA. And we look at column one and that's going to be our primary procedure. And in this case, it's drainage of a finger abscess simple. Um, oh, I added drainage of a finger abscess to this other one. Okay. That's not what that code means. Anybody have your books handy and you can um, give me in the code in the chat box what 51703 is supposed to be? I challenge you for that. So we look at the column one. That's the, the primary procedure that's being done. It's the drainage of a finger abscess. Column two are other procedure codes that may be reported at the same time. And column F is where we identify those modifier indicators and they tell us when we can and when we can't use a modifier. So we look here, the drainage and abscess of a finger that is reported at the same time as, all right, let's see who in my chat has the answer. Anybody? Anybody have the answer for the 51703? I can grab it real quick. The 51703, just so you have something to reference of what I'm talking about. Um, and of course, my coding book is taking its precious time loading. Anybody else jump in there yet? Okay, well, I'm going to think about what it is. And in the meantime, someone jump in there and grab it. So they're showing you that when these two procedures are reported together and they're, they're done at the same encounter, that a modifier associated with the NCC, they are allowed to unbundle or to show that each procedure was a separate procedure when they're supported in documentation. When we look at the, the drainage of a finger abscess and an endovascular intracranial prolonged administration of a pharmacologic agent other than a thrombolytic, thrombolysis uh, arterial including the catheter placement, they're telling you that th these two procedures are so off from each other that there is no modifier that is indicated, right? No modifier is indicated at all when we have our, our drainage of a finger and that endovascular administration of pharmacologic agent. can't be delivered at the same time. Any complaints from each other. The layer that's going to be a finger with an 
of therapeutic substance, um, not in There's those two percent of the you should never be given a diagnostic substance at the draining of fingers. So that kind of makes sense, right? Um, those are way off from no, you can't not even with five. If you say, I'm hearing every word. So anyway, I'll say it again. The draining of the finger, diagnostic therapy, substance, they can be reported together. That's just, it's just not doing that. Um, let's do a very one. And someone's put it catheter complication. Oh, uh, my audio. Let's see. Um, so hold on just a second, guys. I'm trying to take care of my audio. Um, how's my audio now? It's the connection. Okay. So I don't know why our connection is faulting this morning. I apologize to you. Um, oh, excellent. Good. Okay. Let me jump back over and tell you what I said. So when we're looking at these two procedures, which is the insertion of a temporary indwelling catheter at the same time as the abscess of a finger. Now, if I'm going to see my dermatologist for the abscess of a finger, I'm not real sure that I want him doing a temporary indwelling catheter at the same time. However, if the documentation supports it, maybe this is a multi-specialty practice. I don't know what the circumstances are. A modifier could be placed when those two services are reported at the same time. So sometimes it really is just a simple check, a look and see if this qualifies, um, what those NCCI edits are there. So just giving you an idea of what we were talking about there. All right. Maybe if we stop sharing the screen, we'll get a little bit better connection there. But I just wanted to show you guys that when we talk about compliance, it's not this big, scary thing, guys. It's something that we've been doing all along, that if we go to the OIG website, they tell us what the elements are. And, and I, we've gone through them a couple of times now. And then they also tell us where their areas of risk are. And so that gives us the opportunity to, if we have a compliance uh, you know, manual in our office, a plan, we can go back and see what does that include for those risk areas and create policies for them. Two things. One, because it's, you know, it's mandatory by law that we have this. Two, it's the right thing to do. And three, it helps your staff. It gives your staff a reference point to go back to. So as you bring in new people to your practice, that you can show them these policy and procedures, and they can revert back to them when they have any questions. It's a great place to do re-education, to have that chat with your staff, to say, these are the expectations and how we do things. And I'm sure that your staff members would appreciate that little bit of guidance there, right? Um, and you're going to definitely see a change 
in your audit results or your monitoring, right? Activities, part of your compliance plan. When you've got these things set in place, it just makes things run a little bit easier. So let me look in my um, chat box here and see if there are any questions that we can grab before our time with each other is over. Any questions about it? Do we feel better at least about going now and implementing our compliance program, maybe writing some of those policies for um, items that are already in our compliance program? Hopefully you're motivated at this point. If your practice doesn't have a compliance program in place, please feel free to reach out to us. We can make you a compliance program that is relevant to your particular practice. We can implement that manual that has all of these guidelines in it, provide you with the education. We can also help you with your policies and procedures, and um, as well as providing that annual education of the updated codes that are coming out. 2022 is going to be so incredible. I know that I've shared with you ICD-10, CPT, some of the final rule things over the last couple of months. Um, so you know that we've got a lot of wonderful things coming in 2022. And I look forward to working with all of you. If you have any questions after this that maybe we are not answering, please feel free to reach out to us. We would be happy to answer those questions for you. See Hall at Sterling Global Solutions. Check out our website. We've been doing some updates to the website recently. So uh, get familiar with all of the services that we offer here at Sterling Global Solutions. I want to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and I look forward to working with each and every one of you in 2022. Have a wonderful day, guys.